Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Zaid Alali. Zaid is Senior Advisor in Constitution Building in the Arab region for International IDEA. He holds three law degrees from Harvard Law School, the Sorbonne, and King's College London, and he's been practicing international commercial arbitration since 1999, whilst also advising on constitution drafting in Arab countries since 2005. He's written extensively on Iraq, Tunisia, and is the author of a wonderful book that came out last summer titled Arab Constitutionalism, The Coming Revolution. Zaid, it's a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for finding time to join us. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, Zaid, I, I normally begin these conversations reflecting on, on the journey into um, the, the study of the region or, or the study of politics, or in your case, law. But you come from a, from a, a deeply um, political family background. Why did you take the, 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 the legal route of all the, the, the approaches that, that you could have gone down? Um, at the time, you know, you know, I was living in the UK um, in my teens, and uh, as as most of your listeners will know, you study law as an undergraduate degree in uh, in the UK. I was very interested in government. I was very interested in, in understanding how um, states are constructed and uh, policies and so on and so forth. And uh, law just seemed like an, uh, an, an easy an easy choice in that context too. And at the time, I don't know if they still do this in the UK, but there are these, uh, the school that I went to did uh, these sort of like questionnaires for students and so on and so forth to try to help guide their choices. And, um, and the results confirmed, you know, what, what I, what I, what I was, um, leaning towards also, which was just trying to, which, which indicated that, you know, the, the answers that I gave to the questions also indicated that, uh, law and government were, were, were my interest. So basically, you know, that was my personal feeling, mm-hmm. my, um, the guidance that I received. My father had also studied law as well, and he was in government as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it just seemed like a very, for me, it just seemed like an easy, an easy choice. But at the same time, you know, my brothers didn't decide to study law. I was just, uh, uh, you know, I have three brothers, so I have two, two brothers who studied something else. And my youngest brother, who was 10 years younger than I am, studied, studied law, uh, but always stayed and never, never changed. He moved into commercial law and never changed. So, so I don't want to make it sound like my family background and the circumstances that I was living in predetermined sure, yeah. the choice that I made, but, uh, but it played a, it played a big influence. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course I can, I can understand that. It's interesting. You mentioned that, that questionnaire actually, um, I, I remember doing that and the things that it suggested that I do were tree surgeon and rock star. And I think <laughs> I've done something spectacularly wrong to end up where I am today from that, uh, <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> from that questionnaire. But, um, it's it's interesting hearing you you say that law seemed like the obvious route, and I, I can understand why you would say that given the um, given the type of law that that you are now doing. I guess it's it is political and it's, it's related to the the question of um, of, of, of states and, and governance and, and governments. Do you remember when you when you first realised that that those were the things that you were interested in? Was there a, a moment, or was it just sort of a, a gradual osmosis type process? No, it was gradual. Uh, you know, when I was very very young, before my before my teens, you know, I didn't have any really clear interest. But uh, you know, I was living in West London at the time. We moved there when I was ten, and by the time I was thirteen or fourteen, I just. Started spending a lot more time in the public library. It mm-hmm. was in Ealing Broadway, 
and um, and I would you know immediately gravitate towards books about history and politics and government sure. and so on and so forth. And you know, I, I was reading all sorts of stuff, but um, but you know, right from the start and increasingly over time, I would just read more and more, uh, more m- more and more books about history and government and politics. And and often you know, I would leave the library with like ten books, and when I would get on the underground to go to school or whatever, <laughs> I would carry like three, three or four of them with me, and I'd read them on the way and on the way back, and so on and so forth. And so so it was. I can't point to any specific moment, at least in terms of when I was growing up. Um, but it was always clear to me that I would try to move into that field professionally when the opportunity arose. Um, and then it eventually happened when the war in Iraq happened in 2003. Um, but up until that point, I, w- I wasn't working in that field at all. I was doing commercial law. Yeah. Uh, it was clear to me in my mind that I would, you know, I would, I would, I would, as soon as the opportunity presented itself, I would move into that. But it wasn't clear to me what that opportunity might look like. And sadly, it came in the form of a, of a conflict. Right. Okay. Can I just take you into that that moment then um, with the with the conflict, the US led invasion, and everything that that happened? Where do you fit into this, Zaid? What's your your position in it as someone who's who's got these these three wonderful degrees, someone who's got such a, a rich family background along with your own intellectual merits? Where where do you fit in? Um. Okay, so I mean, just a quick, a quick note on the background is that so my my father was in government with uh, with the Baathists, and he was amongst the six people who were governing the country um, from 1968 to 1970. So he was what in what's referred to as the Revolutionary Command Council, um, which is a six-member body. And he was he was he was one of the members who were governing the country, and but he he be, he became a dissident quite early on in 1970. He was you know, he had issues with the other people in the, in the council, mainly with uh, with Saddam Hussein, and then was 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 exiled right, from that point point in time. He was eventually slightly brought back into the fold from 1973 to 1980, but then when the when the conflict with Iran started, um, he he resigned uh, uh, like a final time. And, and said he couldn't, uh, couldn't continue. So basically, I was born in 1977. So when I was three, he was exiled permanently, basically, with no hope of, not only no hope of going back, but also no hope of even of communicating with anyone in Iraq. It was really, really um, like a complete cutoff. So uh, so essentially, you know, I was totally cut off from Iraq for, for that period of time. But because we weren't an emigrant family, we were an exiled family, uh, it's all my parents used to talk about. I mean, they at home it was that was the only conversation, at least with my parents. With my brothers, of course, it was something else. But with my parents, they would only ever talk about Iraq. That was the only interest. Uh, my father, you know, spoke English okay, you know, at least enough to speak to journalists and historians and academics and that sort of thing, and perhaps politicians, but never integrated at all in the U.S. We were living at, at first, and then in the U.K. I mean, I don't think he ever even had a, a single American or British acquaintance, let alone a friend, right? right. All of his uh, acquaintances or friends were either Iraqi or people from the Middle East that, uh, that, that you know, was not, not integrated in any way at all. Um, so it was, always, it was always there very, very deeply, at least for me. Once again, my, my brothers weren't as connected, so it wasn't automatic, but, yeah. uh, but obviously the influence was very much there. Sure. And when the war, when, when, the, when September 11th happened, I was living in New York at the time. I moved back to the U.S., 
and I was practicing as an attorney. And it was always, immediately it was clear to me when that happened that, the, 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 you know, I remember, um, you know, I wasn't, uh, I was working in Midtown, not in, uh, not close to the Twin Towers, but just looking at it and, you know, and, you know, with everything that was going on, all the people who were dying and these horrific scenes and so on and so forth. Shortly thereafter, I can't say exactly how shortly thereafter, but shortly thereafter, they immediately started talking about Iraq and, uh, you know, basically within a day or two, mm-hmm. like Iraq's responsibility and yeah. so on and so forth. So it started dawning at me that, oh, this is going to have repercussions for Iraq and potentially a conflict. And so potentially what could happen is that the regime may change, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we were always thinking as like an exiled family as opposed to an immigrant family, which, is, you know, as, you, as an exiled family, you're always thinking to yourself, the guy could have a heart attack at any moment, right? He could die at any second. And as soon as that happens, and we may be, may be allowed to go home, right? Mm-hmm. It was always just like we're on the verge of, of leaving. So we're always like stuck between this uh, attitude of, well, you know, I need to make sure that, you know, my family is comfortable and so on and so forth. But at the same time, we always need to make sure that we're a moment away from going back home, right? And that if we do go back home, we'll be comfortable there and so on and so forth. Um, and so when, you know, when they started talking about Iraq's responsibility in connection with September 11th or, you know, that it pre- presented a threat in this new world that we were living in, the immediate thought, you know, I, with my parents and I was, okay, well, th- this could lead to an end of the regime. Yeah. And then when, when eventually the war did take place, as also as a family, we had to sort of like make a make a decision, right? So we, we never had sort of like a family discussion about what our position was. Uh, so my father was immediately opposed uh, to the conflict, mainly because he didn't trust the Bush administration. I mean, mm-hmm. he had no confidence at all in them, and also because he was intimately familiar with what was then the Iraqi opposition, which was a large part living in the UK where my father was living as well. And um, this considered them to be a bunch of extremely dishonest and incompetent buffoons, right? Mm-hmm. And thought that they couldn't, to use Paul Bremer's phrase, thought that they couldn't organize a parade, let alone the country, run our country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had to make up my own decision about whether or not I would support it. And I was, I was mainly um, looking towards the motivating factors of the people who were designing the conflict, so mainly Bush and Blair. What I was looking at was, you know, why are they? What is the argument that they're using to go to war? Right? If and I, I sort of like decided to myself that if they said that, listen, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries really screwed up their interactions with Iraq in the past, we have a big share of responsibility for what happened to the people of that country, and uh, we can't trust the regime, which is definitely justified. And part of what it is that we want to do is to rectify our own mistakes, right? Yeah. If they had said something to that effect, I might have been brought over and said, okay, well, in that sort of circumstance, you know, I can, you know, if given that there's a mea culpa and an acknowledgement of their own mistakes, not them as individuals, obviously, but yeah. their, you know, their, their country's policies, right? Then maybe in those sort of circumstances, I could, I could accept. But because their their official rhetoric and their official motivating factors were so incredibly dishonest, and this nonsense about the weapons of mass destruction was clearly bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just like utter nonsense, yeah. you know. And uh, I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. Um, you know, I couldn't 
I just you know the the, the sentence that I had that I sort of like latched onto latched onto at the time, and I don't know if I came up with it myself or if it's something that I'd read somewhere, is that you can't achieve honest uh, outcome if your objective is dishonest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not being honest about your motivations, and there's no way that your things are going to work out in the end. Um, and that's that's what ended up ended up happening. And they were just lying through their teeth about this nonsense about weapons uh, mass destruction. And anyone with uh, any with any sort of like superficial knowledge about the status of Iraq at the time knew that it couldn't pose a threat to anyone, uh, only to its own population, of course, through yeah. repression. But you know, outside of its own borders, no way. Right? I mean, Iraq was in a really pitiful state at the time. Um, and certainly Bush and Blair knew that and their intelligence services knew that. There's just no way that they didn't know that, you know, because they were just lying, I just couldn't trust anything that they said. And so therefore, you know, my position was that I had to be opposed, even though as a family, of course, we stood to benefit because sure, yeah. any change in regime necessarily meant that we could go back home, right? And, you know, we could go back home. And for me, it was, it was even more meaningful than for others because I, I had practically never been. I'd only ever been once before when I was still an infant. Yeah. Um, you know, so I could you know, meet relatives and you know see this place that we had been talking about forever at home for decades, mm-hmm. and you know go back to my my father's home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, so for me personally, it was very, very important for for me to be able to do that. But nevertheless, we were we were very, very opposed. And just quickly on the point of weapons of mass destruction. So what I decided to do, and I was just to note again that I was practicing law at the time. I didn't have a huge amount of time uh, to do this, but I dedicated a few, like one to three hours a day. Is that I took the the dossiers of so-called evidence that the British government had published, um, you know, where they set out you know, specific allegations in relation to specific sites where weapons of mass destruction were being developed, and so on and so forth, and. I traced the activities of the weapons instructors on a, a weapons inspectors on a daily basis, and every day they would put out statements saying that on this day we visited this site and we took out samples and so on and so forth, and then we we can spend the next day, next few days testing them. So every day there was a there was a, a statement to that effect that they had on their own website which they created, which no one visited. Um, and then basically, you know, with time, you could see that they had visited all the sites that the British government had noted were areas of concern and that they had tested samples from each of those sites and that they hadn't found any evidence at all of any type of activities relating to chemical or biological weapons or nuclear weapons. I mean, most dramatic is sort of like nuclear weapons because you can't hide that. There's, it's easy to detect. Yeah. You know, you have, you know, you have you know, mechanisms to detect gamma rays and other things, you know, it's just really, really easy to detect some type of activity. And there's like no evidence at all of any activity at all, right? Which is obvious because Iraq just didn't have the capacity. It was just too poor, too run down. The brain drain was just too great. There's just no way that they could possibly do it at the time after decades of, you know, in- incompetent and idiotic repression by Saddam Hussein and criminal behavior and also the sanctions. They just couldn't do it, obviously, right? Yeah, and so obviously. within just a few, obviously, right? But within just a few weeks of the weapons inspectors being on the ground, you just could see immediately that the dossier, everything that was in the dossier was wrong, right? That yeah. all the accusations were disincorrect. And then, but there was no response then from the British government saying, well, what we put on the dossier turned out to be wrong. There was no response at all, right? And they just kept on talking about, you know, this dossier as if it's all the allegations there still stood, but they, they hadn't. 
And sadly, like journalists didn't really pick up on it. You know, it was, it was a real problem. I, at the time, I wrote to my local MP, who was a nice guy, and I tried to convince him to change his position. He was a Labour MP. I tried to convince him not to vote in favor of the war, but uh, he didn't, you know, he, he, he decided uh, to keep to the whip, you know, but uh, there we go. Yeah, a, a dark time all around for, for Iraq, yeah. uh, for, for British democracy. A million people on the streets marching against this, whose voices were not heard. Yeah, and I and I participated in that demonstration as well, as sure. did my father. You know, so, sure. You know, it was it, it was you know it was an important it was an important event, you know, a yeah. historic event. But it was. It was ultimately unsuccessful. So then, given that that staunch opposition, including going to the streets in protest against the invasion, how did you end up working in Iraq on the on the new constitution? Yeah. So um, so I continued. Uh, practicing law at the time, so you know, by then I had moved to um, a law firm in in Paris. So I was working in France, and it was clear to me that it was just a matter of time, right? So it was just a question of, okay, the war has happened, uh, the regime has changed, I can go at any moment, you know. And I did, I, you know, I visited for family reasons to meet relatives and so on and so forth. Um, but it was just clear to me that as soon as the right circumstances appear, then I'm, I'm just going to move to Iraq and leave the law firm and just move there. I didn't, it wasn't clear to me what I was going to be doing. I was just looking at different possibilities. So I, I toyed with a different, few different possibilities. So I was um, speaking to a university in Iraq, possibly with a view to teaching. Um, I, I explored the possibility perhaps of becoming a journalist, you know, which I didn't have any background in at all, but I thought it might be interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, while I was considering those different possibilities, what eventually happened is that uh, through the grapevine, I mean, at the time, the UN was sort of like preparing for the constitutional process, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, sort of like late 2004, um, you know, a deal had already been established, you know, sort of like a plan of action, a strategic plan had already been established and agreed to by Iraqi actors and the U.S. occupation that in 2005, the constitution would be drafted. And the UN would provide assistance, technical assistance. That was the idea. And so the UN was sort of like, you know, gearing up, you know, hiring people and so forth. And people at the UN were asking around, trying to find people more or less with my type of profile. You know, so like people who are Iraqi, who are part of this international world that we live in in some way or another, who speak good English, who are lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, you know, very quickly, different people within the UN were speaking to other people and to the grapevine. Different people were asking me, would you be interested? And of course, the answer was yes, I was interested. Um, you know, I wasn't interested in working, for example, for the Iraqi government because I didn't consider it to be legitimate. Yeah. I wasn't interested in working for the occupation authorities, for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. right? But working for sort of like a, what was what I expected to be an independent international organization, yes, that was of interest, right? Sure. It was of interest because I thought possibly we might make a difference. I mean, I can't remember at the time if I was very optimistic, but at least that possibility always exists. And second of all, because I really did believe, and it turned out to be more or less correct, that it was independent, it wasn't politically tied to, to, to a specific side. Um, you know, so, and it really allowed me to become deeply entrenched in this, uh, in, in this discussion that I thought was an important one. So you know, I, I was actually really lucky because um, you know, I was recruited without actually even being interviewed, um, which, was, which was really lucky because if they had interviewed me, then they would have learned very quickly that I didn't really speak Arabic at the time. You know, my, my Arabic was very, very broken. Right. You know, I just spoke like kitchen, kitchen Arabic, just like <laughs> enough to speak yeah. to my mom 
and my parents, but they were using so much English when they spoke to me that I couldn't actually speak to people who only spoke Arabic, right? Right. Which I, which I realized when I visited Iraq for the first time. I was just like, whoa, I'm, I can't really understand what people are saying to me. And they can't really, I can only sort of make, make myself understood on very, very basic issues. Um, but anything like remotely sophisticated, that was just impossible. So, so, you know, so, so I integrated into the position without actually even being able to read. I was functionally illiterate. I could sort of like decipher letters and words, but I couldn't really read anything. So, you know, I, I immediately spent a huge amount of time trying to get up to speed and learning to read and trying to improve my vocabulary. And by the time the constitutional process actually started, which was in May 2005, I could, I could read draft constitutions. So that was, uh, I mean, it was a big leap, but I, but I sort of like leapfrogged over, over everything else. I didn't spend any time doing what, what you normally do when you learn a language, which is sure. to do the basics and intermediate yeah. level. I just went right to constitutional law. And what I discovered much later when I had children is that learning to read constitutions doesn't help you to learn to know how to read <laughs> children's books, right? Um, sure. Yeah. Right? It's, a, it's a completely different uh, way of writing and reading. You know? Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so that, that, that's basically how I integrated and I started working in that context. It was, it was a very difficult, sort of politically it was very difficult because even though I was working for the UN, I was also still very uncomfortable interacting with all these people, um, mainly yeah, sort of the Iraqis and the occupation authorities, the Iraqi officials and the occupation authorities, because, you know, once again, we were an exile family. We knew all of these exiles. Maybe we didn't know all of them personally. We knew a lot of them personally. A lot of them, you know, we would, they would come to our houses, our house in London, and we would go to their places, and there were these regular conferences that my father would attend and I would go to sometimes as well. And we just knew them very, very well. And I just didn't trust them at all. I, I just knew that these people didn't have the capacity to govern their rhetoric about themselves and about the country and so on and so forth. I didn't believe at all. I thought that I didn't believe it. I knew it to be false, right? Yeah. A lot of these people were sort of like petty criminals. Um, you know, it, it's, it's easy when you have like a deeply repressive country like Iraq to, uh, to just say when you have trouble with the regime for whatever reason, to say, oh, I'm a political opponent, right? So if you're if you're caught stealing an air conditioning unit, right, and you're thrown in jail just because you're a petty thief, then if you escape and leave the country, then you can say I'm a political opponent and I was in jail, right? And then no one's going to ask questions. No one's going to ask to actually look into why were you actually thrown in, in prison in the first place, right? Because even in a country, a deeply repressive country like Iraq, petty criminality is the thing. It exists, right? Mm -hmm. And people who are petty criminals know that they can make a living out of that. All they need to do is escape and then say that they were political opponents and then that's it. They've hit the jackpot, right? Really easy transition to make. And, you know, there are all these people's minders in the British and American intelligence sectors, whatever. You know, they, they probably knew that a lot of these people were just charlatans, right? But in any event, we as a family definitely knew it. We knew the people who were genuinely... Like committed to politics and you know changing Iraqi Iraq for the better and becoming a democracy, and we knew those who were not right, who were just you know just in it for the money, right? Yeah. And just like deeply dishonest about their own backgrounds and so forth. Right? And uh, and then when you sort of like show up in Baghdad, and these people, you know, this combination of people, which includes charlatans, are talking about themselves in these incredibly laudatory terms, and, you know. Really farcical, and you know that they're just losers and uh, just like liars and you know, so on and so forth, and don't have two brain cells to rub together. 
uh, you know, just like really deeply, deeply uncomfortable. It's like not, not a good feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, even though I, you know, I was happy to work with the UN at the time, I was n- not, not comfortable interacting with these people. I just thought that it was like crazy the way in which, the, you know, these people just moved from being utter losers in London and suddenly they're like, you know, prime minister and foreign minister <laughs> yeah. and finance minister. Just think that these, these people just, I mean, this place is just not going to end up in a good, in a, in a good direction as a result of this. So the challenges facing you and, and others in drafting this constitution and, and shaping Iraq's future were, were multifaceted, ranging from the, the involvement of these, um, these petty criminals, as you, as you say, to, to even learning Arabic. So the, the challenge is, is, is vast. But at, at what point did you come into this then, Zaid? Were you, were you involved after the agreement, um, the Mohassasa agreement, or, or were you involved in setting up that agreement and then establishing the constitutional arrangement afterwards? What stage were, were you involved? Okay, so um, so I, I started working officially uh, for the UN in February 2005. So the Mohassasa, sort of like, you know, the, you know this uh, ethno-sectarian power-sharing agreement, had already been entered into in 2003, right? Sure. So they yeah. they they had established what's referred to as the governing council. Mm-hmm. The the US and UK had established the governing council in 2003, and that was the first ethno-sectarian power sharing arrangement. So it had already been established at that point, and was already there, and was definitely going to stay. So in the governing council phase in 2003, it was very clear and official, and you know the breakup of the governing council was determined purely and exactly on ethno-sectarian terms. Eventually, when they were drafting the Constitution, there was no wording in the Constitution that established that system of government, that established the Constitution or any future government as being ethno-sectarian, but it was already clearly decided informally, formally, orally, not in writing, but you know, it was, yeah. it was much more powerful than anything that could be in writing, that any future government would be constructed on an ethno-sectarian basis as well. Right? So, so that's what at one point I, I came in. But I should make clear, however, that at the time I was 27 years old. Uh, I was not in a position to influence things. You sure. know, so I didn't have any deci- decision-making power whatsoever. <laughs> okay, sure. So I can't, you know, so I can't, you know, I can't, I can't take uh, the, I can't really take the blame, nor can I take any credit for anything good or bad that happens. You know, yeah, I was yeah, sort yeah. of like, you know, reading draft constitutions. I was writing, uh, you know, analysis memos. I was interacting with people and that sort of thing, but I was not a decision maker at all. What I find very, very strange is there were lots of people who were in my situation as well, who had mm-hmm. no influence whatsoever, and even for a much shorter period of time than, than I was involved. You know, so there was a few people who were involved for this few weeks, right? And much earlier on, had no influence whatsoever. And they built careers out of claiming that they wrote the Iraqi constitution. <laughs> and, sure. and no one, no one sort of like questions it and say, well, hang on. How could you have done that if you were just there in 2003 and, you know, you were, you know, the constitution was in 2005. How's that? How, how does that work? But, um, but there we go. You know, I, and, and I also find it strange that people would associate themselves with this catastrophically, you know, disastrous event, which is the drafting of the, the constitution, like deliberately say, you know, I was involved as if that's a positive thing. Right. Yeah. Even, even though they weren't. And then, and then people listening to that would say, oh, wow, that's so impressive. Instead of what the, the reaction should be, whoa, aren't you ashamed of yourself, right? I mean, you know, if I was involved, I would, I would lie and say that I wasn't involved, right? 
saying, I know a guy who worked for, who worked <laughs> yeah. for the U.S. I, I, you know, I know a guy who worked for the U.S. Embassy. So like this, he was a prosecutor in Boston. And, you know, he, he was, you know, very embarrassed at the war in Iraq and so forth. And so he volunteered to work for uh, the State Department in, in, in Iraq to try to help make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. And then he was so ashamed at, you know, the way in which things went and all the corruption, mismanagement and so on and so forth, that when he eventually he went back home and people asked him, where were you? I haven't seen you in years and so on and so forth. He would tell them that he was in jail, right? Wow. Because he, was, <laughs> he just didn't want to say to people, I was in Iraq trying to help reconstruction, you know? He was yeah. just like too embarrassed that what everything had happened. And that, that makes a lot more sense to me than someone sort of like saying, you know, proudly, oh yeah, I was involved in writing the Constitution. You know, it's like, it's so embarrassing to say something like that. Why would you, why would you take credit for something like that? Anyway, whatever, there we go. There's there's so much that we could talk about with regard to the Iraqi Constitution and and the the following years, the, the, the ways in which Constitution makers, analysts, legal scholars, etc., etc., sought to try and create a, a system that would mitigate the the violence that was taking place across Iraq and and try and move to a, a more optimistic future. But and we we could do that for for days, if not weeks. Sure. But I'm conscious that that we've spent a long time already talking, and we've not quite got to your book yet. And your book is wonderful, and I. I really want to spend a bit of time talking about that because I think it's such a, a really important um, text that, that, as you say, was sort of 10 years in the making and perhaps even longer if we go back to your initial um, engagement with the Iraqi constitution. So can you just tell us a bit, Zay, just what the book is, is about? This is Arab constitutionalism, the coming revolution. What, what is it about and, and what are you trying to do in it, please? Okay, so the, the, the book is, uh, focuses on all of the constitutional processes that took place after what's referred to as the Arab Spring, um, which I prefer to describe as the Arab Uprisings in 2011, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, following that, the, 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 the uprising, new constitutions or constitutional amendments were adopted in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, Syria, Jordan, Yemen, and other countries as well, right? So you're talking about huge amount of activity, constitutional activity, discussions about amendments and so on and so forth. And so on the one hand, what the book does is that it um, looks at what happened. It uh, provides a historical narrative, a political narrative, a legal narrative, right? It looks at the outcome. So that's the first part of the book. It tries to put everything into one place and tries to look at everything together. So there's a, a chapter on each of... Uh, Egypt, Libya, uh, Tunisia, and Yemen. There's one chapter for, for each of those countries, and there's one chapter that brings some of the other countries together because there's a, a lot less to say about them, uh, although it's a longer chapter than the others. So that's the, the first part of the book. It's not sort of like a blow-by-blow blow account, and it doesn't focus on all of the elements, but it, and it also doesn't just focus on the legal aspect as well. It tries to place, that first part of the book tries to place the legal developments in, their, in what I consider to be the proper historical, socioeconomic, and political context, right? Yeah. So it does, you know, I'm not a politician, uh, political analyst or political scientist or historian, but I try to bring enough of that color into the discussion so to understand the implications and importance of the constitutional discussions that were taking place, right? And also the outcomes. So that's the first part of the book. 
And um, the second part is obviously informed by the first part. The second part is designed to try to, uh, first of all, on the one hand, uh, re-emphasize uh, how the constitutional processes and the constitutional design uh, and negotiation processes that took place all failed. And the reason why they failed is because the people who were negotiating and drafting the text um, took advantage of an uprising that they were not responsible for. Uh, the uprising was carried out by the general population in these countries, mainly, not in all places, but mainly by working class people, uh, people who were deeply concerned about socioeconomic conditions in their country. And based on their primary concern, which was socioeconomic, they demanded an end to the regime because they understood that the regime was causing for their socioeconomic distress, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's what was happening. And then eventually what happens is sometimes in some of the countries like Morocco, you know, a few months later, they're writing a new constitution. In other countries, it happens a few years later, right, or over a period of a few years. But basically, the people who are either drafting or negotiating the new text only focus on the political design, right? And they're only focused on um, sort of like this informal power sharing arrangement in yeah. the sense of you have pre-existing um, uh, political rivalries between uh, statists, people who are committed to like a strong, uh, sec quote unquote, secular Arab state, you know, uh, secularism in the, in, the, in the Arab meaning of the word, right? Yeah. And also on the other side, Islamists, right? And the idea is, okay, in this new environment that we're living in, the constitutional negotiators are figuring that the Islamists need to be brought in some way or another, right? And we need to figure out a way in which these two camps are going to coexist with each other in this new power sharing arrangement. And the way in which it's going to articulate itself eventually is that Islamists will more or less be the most powerful force in parliament. And the secularist camp will be more or less the most powerful force in the executive through the, through the president, right? And we need to find a way to make these, these two camps interact and survive in this new arrangement through the arrangements between uh, the institutional arrangements between the parliament and the president. And that's fine. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's good that, that those sorts of discussions are happening. But those were the only discussions that were happening. And there was nothing that was being said afterwards about the people who caused the uprisings and, and carried out the uprising in the first place, which is the, the masses, the tens of millions of people who are out in the streets demanding for change and motivated by socioeconomic conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So there are different things that you can say about that. So one is that, well, that's economic policy, and you know that should be a matter for economics to resolve, and that's broadly true. However, there's lots of things that constitutions can say about that as well. And even when you're, even when you're talking about system of government and relationship between parliament and president, so on and so forth, you know, when you're negotiating a tax. You're, you should be motivated to have the, 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 the you know, you, uh, within, within the mind of the negotiators, you know, the underlying objective determines how the system is going to function eventually in, in practice. And when your own motivation is my own personal survival, right, then what's going to end up happening is you're just going to create a power sharing arrangement that's elite based that will be allowed for elites to survive, which is okay and that's good, right? But you're not taking into consideration anything else, and everyone else is not going to get anything. So the second part of the book tries to shine light on that huge deficiency in the negotiations that took place. It tries to uh, illustrate or explain or articulate a vision of 
what might have happened if constitutional negotiators had been motivated with the, the proper concerns. And once again, I'm not trying to suggest that they shouldn't be motivated by their own survival. Of course they should be, but it shouldn't be their own, their only motivation. <clears throat> I try to articulate also what a um, process design, when you're designing a constitutional drafting process, what it might have been able to look like if uh, the interests of the general population have been taken into consideration, right? And I try to uh, uh, give some idea of the types of constitutional arrangements that might have been uh, might have been given rise to, or might have been incorporated into these texts if they had been motivated by what I consider to be the proper concerns, right? So basically, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to articulate uh, a narrative, a vision for what could happen in any future constitutional revision process if circumstances allow and uh, if they permit for that type of discussion to, to, to happen. So it's it's based on research. It's published by an academic press, so it has some academic value to it, but it's not a traditional uh, academic text in the sense that it's arguing in favor of a very specific position. Right? Sure. So that's, that's, that's as quickly as I can summarize it as possible. Well, I think that was a very succinct and, and valuable um overview so thank you uh, what do you think based on on that and based on your reading of of the the protests being driven by socioeconomic conditions and i think from my own work on the protests and the uprisings i think there is a there is a democratic component at least um in some of the states that i'd, I'd worked on there was a, a demand for political reform um Good governance, perhaps related to um, socioeconomic conditions, corruption, but certainly people wanting to have more of a say in the in the way that their lives were were regulated and ordered. I mean, what role do you think the political um, played in in all of this? I mean, was it just cast aside, or out of a desire for for those drafting um, to stay in power and to consolidate their power? Or, or was it was it sort of taken into account in some implicit ways? Where does the political fit into it, I guess, is what I'm asking. In the, where does the political get into it? Well, amongst the protest movements, you mean, or in the negotiations? No, in the negotiations and the, and the constitutional processes. <clears throat> well, in the, in the negotiations, I mean, just like from a very practical perspective, I and mean, if you take Tunisia as an example, right? What, like the principal negotiators were not living in Tunisia at the time, right? When the uprisings took place. And Nahda was an exiled party, right? Or yeah. the leadership was exiled. Uh, Muntaf Morzupi was an exile, right? So they were, of course, supported the uprising, but they didn't have anything to do with, uh, with organizing it. They didn't have anything. They were not on the ground physically. They did not participate in it. They were mm -hmm. in, only able to come back after the uprising took place, right? So, so, they're, so they benefit. They benefit from the, the sacrifices that people make and you know, the, the, you know, the hundreds of people who are killed and the thousands who are wounded and so on and so forth. They have a direct benefit and they return to the country and are able to live in their own countries again as a result of this thing that's happened, this, the uprising that happened, which is a good thing. I'm not saying that that's bad. But the problem is that afterwards, another uh, and all the other parties, like you know, the Mazupi's party amongst others and even, even Mustafa Banjakar's party, right? they're not democratic parties. They're not organized internally democratically, right? Um, they don't have any specific policy platforms other than really narrow issues. So, for example, Nader, their only thing is, of course, they're an Islamist party, so they're trying to in increase the influence of 
religion in public life, right? But in terms of, you know, everything else that, that really bothers people on a day-to-day basis and like calls for people to, to participate in uprising, no clear policies at all, no clear positions at all. Not then in 2011 and not all the way till 2021 when they were thrown out of parliament, but if they said, you know, everyone was sort of like fooled by this veneer of, <clears throat> you know, that's like, oh, this really modern, um, Islamic democratic party, so on and so forth. So, you know, they, they certainly were, um, sort of like democratic in the sense that they believed that the only way in which they could survive in Tunisia was through democracy. But aside from that, if you ask them about, for example, you know, workers' rights, if you ask them about economic reform, if you ask them about foreign policy, it's like nothing. You get either get yeah. blank faces or deep contradictions or so forth. There's like really nothing. If you ask them about judicial independence, about decentralization, no interest, you know, no interest, no knowledge, no specialization, no positions, nothing, right? Um, and that, and Nada was the best of the parties, right? They were the most organized yeah. of the parties. All the others had nothing to contribute at all apart from, you know, fear of the Islamists, right? And fear that, you know, the Islamists are going to bring in more religion to public life. Sure. That's it. That's the only conversation that was happening. And it's still that way today. I mean, it's really pitiful and painful to watch this debate on public television in Tunisia about what, whether or not the constitution is a good thing, this new constitution is a good thing mm-hmm. or a bad thing. And most of the commentators only talk about, you know, the Islamist threat, you know, and they don't talk at all about the thousands of Tunisians who've been drowning at sea while they're trying to make their, their way to Europe. Right, because socioeconomic conditions are so bad in this country, yeah. and but you know the public debate is just all about Islamists and non-Islamists and so on and so forth. It's just really, really painful, painful to watch. Right. Um, so in, in in that context, when the negotiations actually happen, these people who are utterly unprepared to participate in a constitutional negotiation, they just refer reverted back to the only thing that was on their mind, which is survival. Right. I'm yeah. here, I'm in Tunisia, in this new environment, right? I need to find a way to survive as an individual, as a political group, and as a constituency in this, uh, in this new environment, right? And I'm going to find a way to survive through a negotiated power sharing arrangement, right? Which looks a lot like the sorts of arrangements that existed, uh, that were set up in Iraq and Lebanon and so on and so forth, except that it's not motivated by ethno-sectarian concerns. It's, it's just political, right? So Islamists and non-Islamists will share power in Parliament, right? But are they, do they have clear platforms, one side or the other, or in this huge constellation of parties, are there clear platforms about issues relating to workers' rights, about poverty, about immigration, about economic collapse and so on and so forth? Nothing. You know, there's just like really nothing, you know? There's almost, you know, very, very little discussion that's happening even today, right? Mm-hmm. In Tunisia, the entire conversation that happens that's taking place about economics is purely and solely based on the negotiations that are taking place with the IMF. That's it. That's the only uh, economic platform and, and program, which is we're going to negotiate a deal with the IMF, and that's it. That's how we're going to get out of this mess. You know? It, it points to a broader else. failure of the political, I think. Definitely, no question, right? And and you know, and, and I and I think that's first of all really sad, but it's universal, like throughout yeah. the region. You know, you have these conversations with people. You, you know, I spoke once to the head of the decentralization committee in the Constituent Assembly in Tunisia, right? And decentralization was supposed to be like a big element in the constitutional reform process, right? 
And, you know, after we got the final draft, I spoke to him and I said, man, listen, you know, I really got to say that this chapter in the draft constitution is pretty meager, right? And it doesn't really do much at all. You know, I mean, do you agree? And he said, yes, I agree. And I said, well, what, what's the explanation? And he said, and, you know, this is exactly what he said. He said, no one cares about decentralization. You know, no one cares. Right. And the reason why they didn't care is because they weren't imaginative or creative enough, even within their own limited visions as politicians. You know, if they were imaginative or creative or sufficiently forward-looking, they might have understood that a properly decentralized arrangement would create more political space for political opponents and political movements, right? Yeah. To sort of like emerge and survive and grow and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, as a political opponent, you know, someone who's likely to be sort of like marginalized in parliament, I might be very interested in a meaningful decentralized arrangement because I know that there are specific parts of the country where I'll do very, very well and I'll be able to demonstrate to in the local election and I'll be able to demonstrate through my administration and governance of this local, of this part of the country that, you know, I have a lot to contribute to national politics or perhaps other to local politics in other parts of the country as well. But that, you know, there, this wasn't enough forward th thinking, right? So yeah. as a result, all they care about is sort of like the traditional levers of power, right? Mm -hmm. Prime minister, president, parliament, that's it. You know, who forms, who forms the, the government, right? That was like the main issue, right? Like, you know, is Parliament going to form, is Parliament going to nominate the Prime, the prime Minister or not? Th those are like, that occupy like 80% of the conversation. And then afterwards, the, the rema remaining part of the conversation became, well, who's going to be the arbiter in case there's a disagreement, right? Sure. Okay, the Constitutional Court. And how are we going to compose the Constitutional Court? Because it's so important in this type of context. They didn't trust each other, mm -hmm. but they came up with this arrangement that each, each part of government has a third of the Constitutional Court, right? <laughs> like a recipe for disaster, right? <laughs> yeah. and then and and then eventually they never they, they were never able to form it because there was such a lack of absence of trust, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in the meantime, while this ten-year conversation is happening, poverty is getting worse and worse and worse, and immigration is increasing all the time. People are getting increasingly depressed, right? And the most like the most symbolically important event that took place, which people don't really talk about anymore, um, is that when the constitution was adopted. The three sort of like uh, most official, most important uh, parts of the state or figures of state, the president, the prime minister, and the speaker of parliament went to Sidi Bouzid, which is the city in central Tunisia, a very impoverished part of the country, where the uprising started, right? Where that, uh, that, 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 poor, uh, that, that poor man set himself on fire right? yeah. out of desperation. Um, so they went to Sidi Bouzid in this, what was supposed to be a very symbolic event to talk about the success of the new constitution and the promise that it would bring and the changes and so on and so forth. And what happened is that they were pelted with stones by the locals in the, in the city mm -hmm. because people had been, you know, they carried out this uprising, they suffered tremendously. And in the, in the three, four years and the interim period, all they could see was these debates happening in parliament and nothing else was happening in the meantime. No redress, no discussions about their situation, about poverty, nothing like that at all, right? Yeah. Um, it's just like very, 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 very sad. It's really, really sad. And, you know, just to illustrate that point uh, even further is what could have been done in a constitutional discussion about things like poverty, right? So there are experiments that are happening around the world in different parts of the, in different parts of the world, and they're all learning from each other, right? So... There's conversations that happen in South Africa, in India, 
in Colombia, even in places like Canada, where there's not a huge amount of poverty, but there's still some, where constitutional arrangements are created with a view to creating opportunities for people to have a greater voice, to seek redress, and so on and so forth. So the traditional thing that a constitution will do is talk about socioeconomic rights. Yeah. But traditionally, in the Arab region, socioeconomic rights are not enforceable. Right? They're there, but they're only ambitions. They're sort of like, you know, they're targets, right? You're supposed to sort of like gradually meet that target, but they're not supposed to be directly enforceable through any type of mechanism that's set out in the Constitution. So the most immediate mechanism that you can think of is if the Constitution says that I have a right to education, right, and my school's falling apart, and, uh, you know, the education that I'm receiving there is pitiful, then I have the right as a citizen to bring a claim before a court, right? and say to the court, the state is failing in its obligation to satisfy my right to, to, to education. But in the Arab region, socioeconomic rights, not just in the Arab region, but amongst, uh, amongst other parts of the world, socioeconomic rights are not directly enforceable. You can't bring a claim. Yeah. The, a court will say that I don't have jurisdiction over this, this dispute. It's a political question. You have to bring it <laughs> to your representative, and that's it. Right? So other parts of the world have moved on. So, uh, for example, in South Africa, when they negotiated the text of the Constitution, there was a big discussion about socioeconomic rights and whether or not there's any, there should be any meaningful difference between the right to health care, the right to food, the right to housing, and so on and so forth, and, for example, uh, traditional political rights, civil and political rights, right? So expression and so on and so forth. So there was a big debate. I don't want to exaggerate the importance of Mandela in this context. But at one point, he did say in an important speech, he said, um, how could you possibly have full and free exercise of freedom of expression if you're hungry and you don't have a home, right? Mm, yeah. You know, for us, there is no difference, yeah, right? Sure. There is no difference between socioeconomic rights and civil and political rights. They are all basic rights. So the Constitution of South Africa doesn't recognize a difference. So you can bring a claim on, on the basis of any, any of those rights. However, the problem eventually, right, and I think a lot of people realize this at the time, but it's even more clear now, is that bringing a claim isn't very easy, right? And you have to have access to an attorney. If you're poor, it's going to be very, very difficult. There are civil rights organizations that, you know, can, like, volunteer and do pro bono work to try to help people. But, of course, that's going to be only a very, very small number of people, et cetera, et cetera. So based on that type of experience, all sorts of countries are sort of like experimenting with new arrangements, legal constitutional arrangements, to try to give life to those sorts of um, those sorts of possibilities. And you would think that in a place like Tunisia or Egypt, right, where poverty was a huge problem, it remains a huge problem, it's even a bigger problem today than it was 10 years ago, you would think that they would at least talk about this sorts of problem, right? to try to uh, either learn from other people's experiences and hopefully do even more and build on them, right? Create a new arrangement that learns from the experiences of others and something that's more appropriate for Tunisia, right? Something that responds to their local needs and their local arrangements and local concerns and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the conversation simply just never took place. It's like never happened, right? It it sounds so counterintuitive given the... Sorry, please go on. No, it's not, it's, not, it's not that they decided against it in the sense that, you know, you know what, we can't afford it, right? We're a poor country and we can't afford, you know, to give everyone uh, uh, access to courts for the enforcement of these rights and so on and so forth, you know, after having judged everything and so on and so forth. That the conversation just never happened. 
the 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 way in which they discussed it was to look at the, what was previously in the 1959 constitution and what did it provide for on socioeconomic rights and it's sort of like reformulated the rights and added in you know what looks like things that are interesting right so instead of just saying everyone has a right to education now it says everyone has a right to good quality education yeah but that doesn't make any difference at all because there's nothing you can do with that wording you don't have access to a court there's nothing you can do with it you don't have automatic rights to petition there's nothing right mm-hmm. so you know they just spend all this time sort of like you know throwing set what do you call it so like uh like magic dust in people's, in people's eyes, right? Just to fool them into thinking that, oh, look what we did. We included all these great rights. But in fact, they're not important, right? Yeah. Uh, and I would go even further. I would even say that a lot of the negotiators who spent a lot of time negotiating the, the this new wording didn't realize that they weren't enforceable, didn't realize that there was nothing they could do with them, right? You know, they're just like totally unprepared for the situation that they're in. So just to go back to the book, uh, what I would like it to do, and there are a lot of other people in the region that are doing this as well, is to sort of like you know uh, give people at least an idea if in in a in a future constitutional process these are the things that you should be talking about if you're trying to respond to the general population's needs. You know, it can't just be the case that politics and constitutional negotiations are just an elite concern. You know, it can't, that can't be it. If that's all it is, then you're, 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 you're setting yourself, uh, setting up yourself up for failure as what happened in Tunisia. And what it means is that, you know, within this elite bargain, if one side, uh, gets the upper hand, then they can just take over exactly as what happened in Tunisia. And no one's going to bat an island. No one will protect the system because there's, they don't see themselves in that system at all. Right. They don't see any benefit for themselves. I know there's this discussion about whether or not democracy should bring benefits or goods to people in order to be an ideal, right? But be that as it may, in a place like Tunisia, that's what people believe. Mm-hmm. believe that if, if democracy isn't going to improve socioeconomic conditions, it's actually just going to lead to deterioration, right? Then it makes it difficult to defend, right? And I think that's and, what's and, so and great about the book. what happened. I mean, that's what's so great about the book. It shows the um, the, the intersectionality and the, the interconnectedness of all of these different challenges across different cases, which I think is is so valuable given um, given the challenges that places like Tunisia are facing. But given that that there are there are other states across the region and and indeed beyond that have got their own types of political. Um, uh, socioeconomic and dare I say constitutional crises as well so this is why it's um, it's so valuable that that um, your book is is read by by people and it's one of the one of the many reasons why I'm thankful for for your time today uh, Zaid but listen we've been talking for a huge amount of time so I I'm conscious of, of your time being hugely in demand with regard to everything in in Tunis right now so I'll say a huge thank you for your time, Zaid. It's been a real pleasure connecting and and listening to your your story and hearing more about the the book, which is wonderful. So I do urge everyone to to get hold of a copy. So thank you so much, Zaid. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was great talking. Thanks. A huge thanks to Zaid for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter 
at Zed Al Ali. That's at Zed Al Ali. So do give him a a follow, and do check out his wonderful new book. I say new, of course, it's a year old, but I guess that's still technically new. Um, as always, thank you to you for listening. Please do share, subscribe, etc. Uh, it helps us out. And until next time, thanks for listening.